You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 40. The Battle of Cable Street. Today's object is a memoir written nearly 12 years ago. In this edition of The Souvenir Shop podcast, we have a small departure. Last week, my father Paul would have turned 98. So, as a special late and posthumous birthday present, I've invited him on as the guest writer for this episode. On October the 4th, 1936, a demonstration took place in the East End of London that has since become something of an iconic touchstone in the fight against racism. I'm talking about the event known as the Battle of Cable Street. At the time, Dad was a boy of 11, and, ignoring his parents' demand that he stay indoors, he went and joined the hundreds of thousands of people who rallied to stop Oswald Mosley's black shirts marching through a Jewish area. 75 years later, a year before his death, he wrote this personal account of the day. There was one problem which was seriously affecting the Jewish population of the East End. Mosley's British Union of Fascists, the BUF, was making its presence felt in every aspect of our lives. They had taken their uniform from Mussolini's black shirts in Italy, but had taken many of their policies from the Nazis in Germany. Hitler had found that he could gain support from a poverty-stricken population with high unemployment and terrible shortages by putting the blame for Germany's troubles on a minority section of the population, the Jews. Mosley followed him using two main arguments. One was that the Jews were all very rich and controlled the banks and hence the economy of the country and they used their power to create unemployment so they could hold down wages and increase their own wealth. The other argument was that the poor immigrant Jews of the East End would work in conditions and for wages that no honest Englishman could tolerate, so the Jews got whatever jobs were going, leaving honest English families to starve on the dole. This was mixed with various quotations from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and those who chose to believe these so-called facts felt that whatever they did was justified. This line has been followed by all extreme right-wing parties ever since. Whatever was wrong was the fault of immigrants. Added to this was the overwhelming evidence that the BUF paid 10 shillings a week to those who wore the black shirt, and the conditions were there for the growth of the party. Some of the national press supported them. Originally, the Daily Mirror gave some support to what it thought was a new radical party, but soon changed its mind. The Daily Mail, however, supported the BUF for several years. The newspaper's owner, Lord Rothermere, even wrote an article headlined, Hurrah for the Black Shirts! And another article described Mosley as a great English gentleman. There was even evidence that the mail contributed to the costs of a mass meeting addressed by Mosley at Olympia, where hecklers were badly beaten up by the black-shirted stewards. In the East End, Jews were attacked, synagogues and graveyards desecrated, 
and the windows of Jewish shops broken. On any bare brick wall, you saw lightning flash symbols of the BUF, often with the letters PJ, Perish Judah, beside it. The authorities did little about it. Sir John Simon, the Home Secretary, was quoted as saying that the attacks made his blood boil. The cartoonist Lowe published a cartoon showing an old bearded Jew lying on the pavement while two black shirts vanished round the corner. Sir John Simon was sitting nearby with a very red face and a balloon coming from his mouth repeating that his blood boiled, while a couple of policemen stood by with a kettle to boil on his head to make a cup of tea for the victim. The climax came in October 1936 when Mosley announced that 6,000 of his black shirts were going to march along Whitechapel through the Jewish quarter of the East End. They wanted to show who was boss. They wanted to show that Jews were unwelcome and that they could take over the Jewish areas whenever they wanted. The response from the various political parties was fairly consistent. The Labour leader, George Lansbury, the Labour mayor of Stepney and the Labour newspaper, the Daily Herald, all told their supporters to ignore the march. Conservative and liberal politicians didn't give an opinion, but said that in a democracy they were entitled to march. The Communist Party was holding a meeting to support the Spanish Republicans in Trafalgar Square on the same day, and told its members to go there. Even the Jewish Defence Committee told London Jews to ignore the march. It soon became apparent that many local people wanted to stop the march and they ignored the advice of political leaders. So the communists did a U-turn and later claimed leadership of the protest. The slogan of the Spanish Republicans, No Passara, They Shall Not Pass, was quickly taken up. A quotation from Hitler was also passed around. If the socialists had realised what our intentions were, they would have knocked us off the streets with vigour. Everywhere you went, you heard people making arrangements to meet and go to Allgate and stop the fascists. Even at my youth club, I heard the older boys chatting about it. And at home, my father and mother talked about similar discussions in their own old boys and old girls clubs. The head of the club, Basil Henricus, took the official line and tried to persuade members not to get involved. As with the politicians, he was roundly ignored. On that Sunday, my family gathered at my grandparents' flat in Langdale Mansions off Commercial Road. My grandfather, my parents, and my mother's brothers and sisters, together with their partners, were all going to join the counter-demonstration. Shandle, my grandmother, was going to stay behind to look after my little sister and me. Before they left, my mother gave me strict instructions to stay indoors and not venture outside. Then they joined all those who were leaving Langdale Mansions, which was soon deserted. I was eleven years old and had no intention of missing the fun, so when my grandmother was busy with my sister, I ran out and soon joined the crowds walking to Allgate. Because I was small, I managed to dodge between the adults and soon positioned myself opposite gardeners. 
This was a triangular-shaped department store on the corner of Whitechapel and Commercial Road. It specialised in uniforms and other clothing for the Merchant Navy. To march along Whitechapel, the black shirts would have to get past gardeners, but even the police estimated there were a quarter of a million protesters blocking their way. The black shirts marched from their gathering point in Royal Mint Street, chanting, Yids! Yids! We've got to get rid of the Yids! And then they stopped. The police did their best to clear the way for them. Again and again, mounted police with batons charged the crowd and a number of people were hurt. But the crowd was too large for any path to be made. Then somebody had a bright idea. They broke into a toy warehouse in Houndsditch and liberated some sacks of glass marbles. These were strewn over the road so that neither horses nor people could move. Despite this, a couple of the black shirts managed to struggle as far as gardeners. Standing there were a local hero, Jack Kidberg, the world light welterweight boxing champion, and a huge Irish docker. There had always been an undertow of tribal tension between the Jews of the western part of Stepney and the Irish dockers of the eastern end. But when it came to black shirts, they stood shoulder to shoulder. As the black shirts tried to pass them, Kidberg grabbed them by the shoulders and the docker grabbed their feet and then swung them one and two and straight through Gardner's window. It became obvious that despite the help the police were giving them, the black shirts were not going to march up Whitechapel Road. We found out later that it was Sir Philip Game, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, who suggested that they divert the march to Cable Street. Preparations had already been made to barricade Cable Street, which was south of Whitechapel, nearer the river. Market stalls were on their sides, and even a lorry was turned over to block the path of the marchers. Police arrived to dismantle the barricades, and were met by stones and bottles, while women in the upper stories of the houses were emptying buckets and chamber pots on their heads. The police advised Mosley to divert his followers back through the city where they could march, probably unnoticed, along the Thames embankment. The Battle of Cable Street was over. There was a party atmosphere in the East End that evening. The slogan, They Shall Not Pass, was fulfilled and Hitler's advice taken. His allies were indeed knocked off the streets with vigour. Such was the rejoicing that I wasn't even told off for disobeying my mother's instructions. Mosley's humiliation was followed by a sharp fall in the fascist's image. Parliament further weakened that image by passing a law the following year that made the wearing of political uniforms illegal. Although there were still attacks and vandalism, they were not as common as they had been before. And they never tried to march through the East End again. Thank you for that, Dad. And thank you for teaching me such a valuable lesson decades before the first Antifa hashtag appeared. From an historical perspective alone, a few of Dad's observations are worth picking up on. First of all, the actual Battle of Cable Street was not between the locals and Mosley's black shirts. More interestingly, it was between the locals and the police, 
brought in to ensure a march by a provably violent organisation took place. Secondly, there's the matter of the British Communist Party. It is on record that they saw their anti-Franco demonstration at Trafalgar Square as more important than anything happening in the East End. Their U-turn only happened a few days before October the 4th, once they knew their own event would probably be a flop. Obviously, Mosley and the Daily Mail blamed everything that happened on that day on the Communist Party, and the party was happy to be named as ringleaders, still wearing this as a badge of honour years later. This has become the received wisdom ever since, and still appears in scholarly books and articles about Cable Street. The truth is both encouraging and rather wonderful. Opposition to Mosley on this occasion came from ordinary people, simply talking to each other, and collectively deciding they weren't going to tolerate an upper-class fascist and Hitler wannabe on their turf. The lesson from this is clear. Opposition to racism doesn't start with political parties or leaders or organisations or social media. It starts with you. That was The Battle of Cable Street, written by Paul Diamond and read by his son Matthew. If you enjoyed this, then please like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.